The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome listeners, Dr. Sam here again. And this episode brings you someone who I've wanted to get on the podcast for a very very long time. Dr. Matt Wells is a good friend of mine. He's sharp as a tack and twice as funny and we cover giant cell arteritis in this episode. We were in quite a rush to get him on the show as Matt and his other half were expecting their firstborn shortly after New Year. We recorded this just before Christmas and I'm delighted to say that their baby has been delivered happily and healthily. So many congratulations to Matt and Tash. Finally, many more success stories and coffee buyers to congratulate and thank. Thank you to Rachel, who listened while renovating her flat the week before her exam. Thank you to Louise, who listened for 3,548 minutes, both of whom passed first time. Thank you to Laura Stone and to Bonnie for your kind donations. And finally, thank you again to George, who donated for a second time. He took the gamble and donated before he had his results and followed it up with a further donation when he got his pass. Massive congratulations to all of you on your success, especially George. But for now, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. My name is Dr. Sam Williams, and this week we're covering another essential Paces topic for you, and it's rheumatology theme this time. We're talking about giant cell arteritis. And to join us on this brilliant journey, we've got our resident rheumatology registrar in the Seven Deanery. He's currently out of programme doing some very important research, but we're delighted to have him on the podcast today. Stopping me from making more jokes about early morning stiffness is Dr. Matt Wells. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. And not only will Matt be helping us cover off giant cell arteritis in our paces preparation, but he will be the next candidate on Reg Against the Machine, where our machine that I've spaffed my study budget on spits out a topic related in a a loose sense to our topic or our guests. Um, Matt, what sort of topic would you like if you could pick anything that will come out of the machine today for you? Oh, I've just written a departmental Christmas quiz and then done my own Christmas quiz in the last week. So Christmas is something I think I could score quite highly on. And topical for the time of recording, but not for when our listeners are going to be hearing this episode. (laughs) Sorry, mate. (laughs) 
we'll come back to that at the end of the show yeah. and i'm sure you're going to do great in the quiz it's multiple choice anyway so the pressure's off let's get started talking on giant cell arthritis So, Matt, why don't we start off talking about your experience of giant cell arthritis and how frequently you end up seeing these patients either on call when you're the medical reg on call in a sort of same day emergency care setting or maybe when you see them in your own specialty when you're seeing them uh, in clinic. Uh, as the general medical registrar, it's not something that you generally get involved with. It's normally something that uh, comes within hours and goes straight to specialty. So I straight to the rheumatology registrar. But I think a couple of times I've had a GP out of hours contact me with suspicion of, of GCA. But certainly as a rheumatology registrar, it's something you can expect to see a couple of times a week or at least discuss over the phone a couple of times, several times a month. Yeah. It's one yeah. of the few rheumatological emergencies. So it's something that we do see quite a lot of. Yeah, fantastic. So hopefully for our listeners today, we're going to be able to enlighten them on the key features which will make you more suspicious of a condition, but also the features which would maybe steer you away from that as a diagnosis and make you consider something else. But bringing this back to paces, Matt, you mentioned about GPs giving you a phone call. And I guess Mm -hmm. if if you're seeing these patients in clinic, you're also going to be receiving some form of referral letter. And that referral letter is going to be probably very similar to what our candidates may be faced with as a likely vignette. And so we're going to talk about GCA in the context of a clinical consultation station, uh, which we know are the new 15 minutes, uh, 15 minute stations with where you're expected to perform a full history with an examination pertinent to the specific system and then discuss the investigations and management with the patient. So, Matt, what are the sort of likely vignettes that our uh, candidates might um, encounter in a patient scenario? Because they probably are sort of similar to the referrals which you might get when these patients are seen by you in clinic. Yeah, uh, I uh, imagine, well, we often, as I said, it's often a telephone call initially, and then on, depending on uh, index of suspicion, we, we bring them in. And the threshold to bring them in is generally quite low. Um, it's not something you can really confidently diagnose over the telephone. So, um, yeah, a, a vignette may be something along the lines of, I'd be grateful for your assessment of this elderly man who has a, a right-sided headache uh, and raised inflammatory markers, or, um, you know, many thanks for seeing this elderly uh, woman who has new onset headache something in paces i imagine would be slightly more vague uh, but in reality often the cut to the chase and say please rule out gca yeah fantastic and you mentioned a couple of things there which is pertinent to my next question and and there mm-hmm. is something there is something to be gained from the vignette and the first thing which i'll pick up on is that for both of those examples you said please see this elderly person and age is a significant factor here and uh, maybe you can confirm the myth or or not yeah. of whether or not these patients are seen and usually there's an sort of what seems to me like a relatively arbitrary cutoff um for the age of 50 for these patients so is that, mm. is that quite true is that something which you see in your clinical practice that it's almost never seen below that age yeah so um i agree uh the classification criteria the 2022 acr ULA classification criteria to be considered for gca or classified as having gca uh the minimum age is 50 you cannot be classified with an age under the fi- under 50 in reality to have gca in your 50s would be very atypical and very unusual we would clinically lend quite a lot of weight against it being gca if someone presented uh, in their 50s or even their 60s uh, it's not impossible the youngest person of gca i have seen uh, in all four years of uh, rheumatology that i've done is 49 and that was uh, presented as a poster at the british society of rheumatology meeting 
I have Googled what's the youngest case of GCA on record. And there's a 17-year-old boy with granulomatous inflammation in the, uh, I think it was in the temporal artery. Um, but again, is that truly classifiable as GCA? I, I, I don't think so. And I've, I've spoken to consultants about that. And the feeling was it probably wasn't GCA. So yeah, 50 is unlikely. Uh, 60 possibly, but generally we're seeing 70 to 80 years old. Yeah. So a referral of somebody in their 40s or 30s who suspects a GCA, often we don't see them. We're happy to rule it out on, on, on the grounds of age alone. Brilliant. And so if we move into the history of presenting complaint, which uh, mm-hmm. for, the most, for the most part, the patient will come out with themselves, what is the sort of typical history which you'll be faced with when you, you know, start your questioning with nice open-ended question, you know, tell, tell me about your symptoms. What are the, what's the sort of typical history of a patient who presents with GCA? Yeah, so in clinic, we, we usually uh, see people pretty early in the illness. It's normally a subacute onset headache, so they may be symptomatic for a couple of days, but sometimes it goes on for a few weeks, depending on when they can see their GP. Um, and it's a, a sort of insidious onset headache over, you know, a day, 24 hours, 48 hours, uh, usually unilateral over the left or right side of the head. And uh, it can be associated with just feeling generally a bit rotten and run down. So they may complain they feel a bit flu-like. There may be some malaise, aches and pains generally. They may be a little bit off their food, a bit of a low-grade temperature. Um, and then the more specific symptoms, as I said, uh, they may volunteer that it's tended to touch the side of their head. Um and then, again, even more specifically, uh, things like jaw claudication. And that's something that I think can be misunderstood quite often. So what we mean by jaw claudication is pain that comes on within the master, within the muscle of the jaw with talking or chewing. And then when you stop, it abates over the next you know, minute or two. So we're talking about claudication, like in the limbs and peripheral vascular disease, but in the jaw. And again, that claudication can affect the tongue. And then if somebody has got uh, monocular visual loss or visual symptoms, which can range from, as I said, monocular visual loss through to diplopia uh, or even monochrome vision, that's an emergency. We want them seen by ophthalmology at the same day. It's worth mentioning that a lot of these patients, you know, they may have coexistent polymyalgia rheumatica. So another question you might want to ask about is uh, have they had any, uh, you know, stiffness, pain, aches in their shoulders or hips? Brilliant. And one thing which I'd found in my brief bit of research on the topic was you mentioned about temporal tenderness, which I guess is one of those things which yeah. you'll read about in textbooks, but with maybe seen less commonly in actual clinical practice. But one example I saw was painful when they're brushing their hair or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anything that involves touching the side of the head, allodynia, sometimes putting the head on the pillow can be uncomfortable. And again, I've had patients tell me that they clutch their head for relief and straight away I go, oh, you know, sounds a bit unusual, a bit atypical for GCA. Um, so, yes, there's certainly sort of allodynia over the affected side is something we would look for. Yeah. And allodynia, of course, is the sensation or the, the painful sensation where you might of what should be a non-painful stimulus. So we talked about the, the nature of the headache in, in that it's a unilateral subacute onset and it would very firmly not be in the category of a thunderclap headache it wouldn't it wouldn't fit into that category at all typically matt no 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 it's as i said usually insidious onset over you know it may come on over the course of a day gradually i think in a, in a paces exam the you know it's, it's all very good asking it's very important to ask the focus questions for gca so is there any jaw pain or tongue pain when you're talking or chewing and about the sort of systemic you know malaise 
But I think if you're presented with a, a vague lead-in or a vague vignette about an elderly person with a headache, it would be all important or pertinent to, to ask about other possible causes of headache and sort of start broad. And then as it sounds more like GCA, narrow in. So exploring other possible differentials in the history of presenting complaint would be important as well. I guess what else goes in that sort of category is if they have those constitutional symptoms of uh, malaise and I think also this is a condition where you can get sort of a non-infectious fever as well, Matt. I guess something with that is just ticking off your boxes for things like meningitis and cephalitis, even though it's not in your demographic of interest or the patient isn't in the demographic of interest. That's one thing which you'd, as you say, need to demonstrate to the examiner that you're ticking that box and asking about rashes, fevers, sweats, night sweats, ill contacts and things of that nature. Absolutely, yeah. And one thing which which we mentioned before we hit the record button, but is about larger vessel involvement. So other vessel or other vasculitic signs in a patient like this. And now this might be this might be quite um, off the beaten track. But giant cell arthritis is a condition affecting medium to large vessels uh, with vasculitis. And these patients are at risk of yeah. larger vessel involvement. So I'm just trying to think about what other symptoms you might expect of larger vessel involvement are there any other symptoms that we ought to probe for in these patients for involvement of larger vessels yeah so with uh, patients with uh, gca you can broadly split it into two categories so there's those who've got the classical cranial gca which is what we've we've just been describing with the headache jaw claudication uh, possible cranial neuropathies you know monocular visual loss but then there's a subset maybe 10 to 15 percent who may have a more of a extracranial giant cell arteritis type picture and that tends to manifest itself less with headache and jaw claudication but more with um, as you said sam malaise fever weight loss drenching night sweats and of course the differential for such presentation is broad and cancer and deep-seated infection would be far by far the most likely cause but um certainly that that uh, can uh, represent a subset of our giant cell arteritis population uh, and generally speaking you know they're going to be picked up a bit later um, because the differential is so broad and, and you may uh, find these patients having uh, an abnormal looking aorta or subclavian vessels on CT with some cuffing and thickening of the vasculature. Uh, and they may go on to have a PET CT scan, which would show um, FDG avidity in the uh, aortic root uh, and descending aortic arch, often extending into the subclavians as well. Um, Interestingly, if you uh, PET CT uh, patients with giant, with cranial giant cell arthritis, um, anywhere between 10 and 50% of them may show um, aortic uptake. Uh, and we don't really know the significance or relevance of that. Uh, and it can persist even when they're treated with steroids. Yeah, interesting. But as we say, probably beyond the realms of what would be expected in paces, but just a little nugget there for any rheumatologists uh, among the listenership. And then Matt, moving into our sort of extended history we talk a lot about the past medical history and i guess asking specifically about pmr it's going to be sort of a hip and shoulder girdle pain and stiffness isn't it absolutely so hip stiffness uh shoulder stiffness pain discomfort uh, again with that inflammatory fa- flavor to it so we, we keep on talking about early morning stiffness um and um you know relief with activity and mobility but very much morning predominant symptoms uh, and again like gca that may be associated with uh, malaise bit of nausea or, or anorexia bit of weight loss uh, and the differential again for polymyalgia rheumatica is vast and does include things like you know um, rheumatoid arthritis onset in the elderly seronegative arthritis like psoriatic arthritis malignancy deep-seated infection 
but with PMR, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's important to consider uh, in that diagnosis, you know, what are the inflammatory markers doing? What are the other potential causes of this presentation? Yeah. And obviously really important to signpost to the examiners that you're, that you know of the association between GCA and PMR. And so what Matt, you mentioned before, but what's the actual, what's the sort of percentage likelihood that someone with PMR is likely to have, have associated GCA or, or vice versa? Uh, good question. So uh, it depends on where you look, but generally speaking, I think it's accepted to be about 10 to 20% of patients with polymyalgia will uh, develop complication of giant arthritis at some point. Uh, and it's important that um, anybody who's receiving a diagnosis of PMR is counseled for that risk and explained what to do if they do develop a headache vis-a-vis yeah. -vis seek medical advice. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And I guess progressing our extended history, I don't know particularly mm -hmm. if drug if drug history is particularly relevant in this presentation. It's not like triggered off by any culprit medications or any culprit medications would be likely to be associated. I guess there's nothing there's nothing really of note there. I mean, immunosuppression are these patients more at risk if they're immunosuppressed? So no, there's uh, no association of immunosuppression. But if somebody uh, is on steroids for another reason, I find it's very very helpful in taking inflammatory history. Somebody with COPD or um, another indication for steroid may report symptoms and not necessarily in gca because we're talking about a subacute short period of time for somebody with inflammatory arthritis or suspected vasculitis if they're receiving steroids for another reason if they have a very typical steroid response it can lend weight to there being an inflammatory uh, cause to their presentation so you know if somebody's developing symptoms as the steroids come down that might be something that you know might lend weight to a steroid responsive illness then going into the family history so is is giant cell arthritis uh, is it familial inherited? Is there an increased risk for the family members that are affected? So that's a really good question. And I will level with you. I, I, I didn't know. And I looked this up uh, today, uh, knowing we were meeting this evening. Uh, and it's news to me. But um, if you have a sibling effective giant cell arthritis, it increases your risk tenfold. So, yeah, there is uh, a significance to family history there. Whether or not it's going to, you know, be a high scoring point in paces, I, I think is probably not the case, but it's, it's certainly uh, interesting and useful to know. And of course, you're going to have to ask the question anyway, as part of your extended history. So you're going to ask about uh, it's notable if they do have it, but if they don't, you're probably just going to move yeah. on to the next bit, which is, of course, your social history. And, you know, there's the usual sorts of things we ask about smoking, alcohol, uh, occupation and function. Are any of these particularly pertinent with regard to their presentation i mean obviously function at work the effect of constitutional symptoms but are any of these <laughs> of particular interest with uh, giant cell arthritis um in terms of social history and relevance to gca uh, i think it's important these patients are often um, older and uh, frailer and at risk of side effects of steroids so it's worth knowing where they're coming from in terms of what their responsibilities are at home you know, if they're caring for anybody and again, somebody who's got, you know, cognitive difficulties, they may struggle on the high doses of steroids that we give um, to treat GCA. So it's worth getting a flavour as to what things are like at home and what their baseline status is. Absolutely. And is it similar to, I don't know, you may know this, you may not, Matt, but we know that the risk of symptomatic or severe rheumatoid is made worse with smoking. I don't know if it's the same with GCA. I imagine it probably is. Uh, I imagine cigarette smoke drives inflammation. So it's, it's probably the case. I, I'm not aware of any, you know, well-documented association there. But, you know, I think certainly they're at risk of vascular disease. And there's a theory that the reason older people get GCA is because they've got underlying atheroma, which may be pro-inflammatory. Uh, so, yes, I think it's, you know, always worth counselling against smoking. <laughs>
so then we've asked our history presenter complaint. We've gone through our extended history. And the next part of the clinical consultation will be the clinical examination. Now, Matt, the candidates are going to have to have taken a comprehensive history and the examination mm-hmm. is ideally going to be a focused examination looking at only the most pertinent body systems. They're not expected to do a, a full systematic examination for everything. But what might you expect our candidates to do if, if they're performing a focused examination for a patient and the suspected diagnosis is one of giant cell arteritis? So a focused exam, throwing your nerves would be key for anybody with a headache and uh, absolutely examining the eyes. So acuity, fields, um, reflexes uh, and fundoscopy. Um, fundoscopy might be looking for uh, a pale optic disc, which could suggest optic neuropathy secondary to ischemia. Looking at the movements of the neck in GCA, um, palpating the temporal arteries, so looking for thickness of the vessels and assessing for pulsatile uh, flow. Uh, is the pulse uh, symmetrical on both sides? Is there any thickening or nodularity? Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, we can see patients who have quite prominent temporal arteries, a bit like stressed Eric, the uh, 90s cartoon character, so quite prominent <laughs> temporal arteries. Um, and that can indicate actually a more, uh, uh, you know, a more sinister prognosis. It may may be a, a warning that their vision is threatened. I always feel the radial pulses, the brachial pulses, the subclavian pulses, uh, and I'll always auscultate the subclavian pulses for bruise as well. Given that we know that um, there is a subset of uh, GCA which is more proximal, and again, I do that examination in any patient with a pyrexia of unknown origin. Um, what else would I do? Uh, blood pressure of both sides, left arm and right arm, mouth opening, tongue movements. And and it would be worth listening to the heart sounds as well to see if there's any um, aortic pathology, aortic regurgitation, uh, which may suggest aortic root involvement in, and, and a dilatation of the aortic root. We know yeah. that having a GCA carries with it a 17 fold increased risk of aortic dissection and a two and a half to three times increased risk of abdominal aortic aneurysm as well. Wow. So plenty for our candidates to find. But it probably has to be said that it's quite unlikely in cases that they would have someone with active signs of GCA. But they could just just as well have a surrogate there or an actor who reports the same symptoms. Particularly, you know, they could just pretend that they're temporal artery is tender on on palpation you know something as easy as that would be important to cover Mm off so matt we've talked about our history we've talked through our examination so let's move on to our differential diagnosis and this is something which we'll have to explain to the patient as well as to the examiner in the discussion afterwards you've talked about the broad differential diagnosis for someone who's got non-constitutional symptoms fatigue malaise weight loss loss of appetites and you know potentially a non-infectious fever as well as well as the headache so i guess we, we have covered off some of these in the uh, when we've discussed the history of presenting complaint but what are the really important key differentials which are going to uh, have to be mentioned when when you come to either discuss with the patient or discuss with the examiner difficult question it depends what your history examination findings are but in somebody who's describing a classical history of giant cell arteritis um, you could open by saying, I'm highly suspicious this patient has giant cell arteritis, as evidenced by subacute onset unilateral headache with temporal artery, associated temporal artery tenderness on examination and dual cortication. I would therefore like to investigate with XYZ. But other things that could mimic GCA, commonly temporomandibular joint dysfunction, any form of infection. Often elderly patients develop headaches when they have infections and they may have elevated CRP and ESR. 
So uh, it would be key to see if you could um, delineate another source of that, uh, that that inflammatory response. Things that I've seen in GCA clinic that stand, stand out to me over the last couple of years. I saw a man with allodynia over the side of his head, normal CRP and a very raised ALP of 1000 who ended up having um, metastatic prostate cancer with C2 root compression. Um, I've seen somebody present with hemicrania continua. Um, and again, the signs point away from this, you know, his CRP and ESR were normal. And Matt, one thing I really wanted to uh, touch on is migraine, which I think is a definitely a person diagnosis, but not necessarily something you might expect in this sort of age group. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, a new onset headache in somebody over the age of 50 is always a red flag. Uh, migraine, uh, new onset migraine in the elderly is certainly very unusual and would definitely warrant further uh investigations um the thing to remember migraine uh would uh not necessarily cause jaw cortication it may cause systemic upset in terms of anorexia and nausea and and, and malaise but again i wouldn't expect it to cause uh, a change in the inflammatory markers yeah and that one thing we sh- we were going to touch on which you've already mentioned is about the uh, polymyalgia rheumatica as a presenting symptom of having aches and pains is is a very broad differential diagnosis. So I, I don't quite think we've got time to list every single possible differential diagnosis of someone who's got sort of hip and shoulder uh, tenderness. So I don't know if it's worth just mentioning sort of one or two that you could touch on, but I, I just think that might take us a bit too long. Yeah. So the key thing to remember of polymyalgia is that you're looking for shoulder, predominantly shoulder and hip stiffness and pain uh, and you're looking for that real diurnal variation so patients who say in the morning for an hour two hours three hours they're really stiff it takes them a long time to get going um, and that that should be 95 plus percent of the time be associated with abnormal crp uh, anywhere from sort of 20 you know 10 to 100 uh, and, and esr 70 to 100 um, and things that can that can mimic polymyalgia rheumatica, rheumatoid arthritis onset in the elderly can certainly come on proximally with shoulder and hip synovitis and inflammatory symptoms, and then evolve into evolving the peripheral joints. Um, so I would always check rheumatoid factor and CCP in these patients. Again, deep seated infection or malignancy. So dipping the urine, checking the calcium and performing a myeloma screen would be important as well, as they could also cause elevated inflammatory markers. And a couple of others that I had down, things like hypercalcemia. I mean, just generally, it could be something yeah. such as uh, hyperparathyroidism or, or yeah. something of that thyroid nature. Thyroid disease, thyroid disease. Uh, Parkinsonism can cause proximal stiffness. It depends how it's interpreted and conveyed in the history. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I came across, Matt, which I wanted to ask you about, I don't know if this is something which you use clinically, but I found a GCA probability score, um, which is done entirely on clinical assessment with very few investigations. Is is that something you use regularly or that you've seen used? Is that GCAPS? Uh, Yeah, GCAPS, GCA probability score. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If I remember correctly, age, gender visual symptoms all score you points and if you yes it's something i have used clinically um and uh last year when i was seeing gta patients regularly i always documented the gcaps in the clinic letter um it has been validated uh in one cohort of patients um and published uh, and it's certainly a useful um adjunct to p- potentially guide the threshold for more invasive investigations down the line yes or as a triage tool to determine whether a patient needs to be seen face to face or dismissed over the phone 
yeah fantastic well thanks matt i think that's going to be really important i mean that was something which i had no idea about but um listeners mm. go and have a look at the uh, gca probability score and or gcaps uh, as, as matt mentioned And so moving on to the investigations, Matt, you've already mentioned about the importance of inflammatory markers in assessing these types of patients, but there are plenty of things which our listeners could mention in the investigations of these patients. In terms of bedside tests, you've already mentioned things like a urine dip, looking for potentially signs of myeloma or something like that. But what what are the investigations which really which are really critical for either confirming or refuting a, a suspected diagnosis of GCA? If I was presenting a case in the PACES exam, I'm a big fan of the structured answer, bedside tests, blood tests, imaging and special tests. Uh, and in a case of suspected GCA, uh, I would suggest simple bedside tests, such as a set of observations and blood pressures in both arms, looking for that large vessel involvement. And then in terms of blood tests, full blood count, you might be looking for an anemia that could suggest uh, chronic inflammation. You might be looking for thrombocytosis. Again, reflecting uh, inflammation, liver function tests. Uh, we see the ALP rise in a lot of inflammatory conditions. And again, that will be a subacute rise, so a recent rise in, in the last week or two, up to maybe 200, 300. So you, you might want to do a, a renal function to make sure that they're going to tolerate um, uh, medications to minimize the side effects of steroids, such as alendronic acid. And of course, the inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP, which we expect to be elevated in 97% of cases, you can get CRP and ESR uh, being normal in GCA, but it's extremely unlikely. Um, and, and those patients would only proceed to uh, a biopsy uh, or ultrasound scan if there was a, uh, a very high index of suspicion. Uh, you may also wish to do uh, a myeloma screen and, and, and calcium. And I've worked with a consultant who uh, had seen uh, GPA or Wegener's granulomatosis present as GCA. So he um, advocates for an anchor in every patient presenting with uh, GCA. And then uh, imaging, Matt, I mean, imaging and special tests for for this sort of condition sort of go hand in hand. I don't know in your practice, how often you mentioned just two things there. You mentioned about ultrasound and you mentioned about temporal artery biopsy. And I guess those are the two maybe seminal investigations for cases which are sort of less clear cut where you really want to confirm a diagnosis. Absolutely. So um, uh, the way that most centres work is that patients get uh, an ultrasound scan before their appointment. So if there's this index of suspicion, they're going to be seen by the rheumatology team. They will attend for an ultrasound scan and then we see them with the result. But obviously in a patient's exam, you're going to be requesting uh, investigations having seen the patient. So an ultrasound scan is 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 almost standard of care now in the, in the UK. Um, it's uh, very sensitive, reasonably specific. Uh, and you're looking for uh, a non-compressible halo sign of the temporal artery, um, which is a surrogate marker of a vessel wall inflammation. Um, uh, there are some false positives. You know, severe atherosclerosis uh, can cause uh, an appearance like the halo sign. And then what sort of patients do you end up going on to biopsy? So most patients who have uh, an ultrasound scan that's positive, um, will, they, won't, they won't need a biopsy. But patients who you have a moderate to high index of suspicion who have a normal ultrasound scan um, will go on to have a biopsy. And I stress that is a minority of patients. And then, Matt, so moving on to our treatment, let's say that clinically we have a high suspicion of GCA and everything that the patient has reported is more or less confirming our suspicion. 
what are the cornerstones of managing this type of condition and what are the red flags where we think that right we need to refer this patient to ophthalmology right so um any patient with visual symptoms uh, which can range from monocular visual loss through to diplopia uh, or a monochromal vision um, any patient with a suspicion of visual involvement needs to see ophthalmology before they see rheumatology. When we take those referrals from GPs, we signpost them to the to the eye hospitals, the ophthalmologists in the first instance. By the way, the benefit of having a positive temporal artery, ultrasound or biopsy, is that it opens the door up to uh, other medications down the line should the patient relapse, such as biologics like uh, tocilizumab. Acute management, uh, as is always the case in rheumatology, prednisolone, uh, and we give high doses in giant cell arthritis. So the starting dose for somebody with uncomplicated GCA, and by that I mean without jaw cortication or visual involvement, they'll start on 40 milligrams of prednisolone. With somebody who's got worrying signs, such as jaw cortication, tongue cortication, the prominent temporal artery or stressed Eric sign, as I call it, uh, they may start on 60 milligrams of prednisolone, uh, and then you taper down accordingly. Yeah, fantastic. And and do you often find that they have a very uh, rapid response to this or can it be quite a sort of slow and sanguinous response to steroids? So very typical steroid response uh, would be uh, near resolution of symptoms within 24 to 36 hours. Steroids inhibit the transcription of inflammatory genes and that's a process that takes hours. So anybody who responds to steroids, you know, two to four hours that's an extremely atypical response and i would suggest it's not the steroids that made the headache better and again somebody who's still got unrelenting headache 48 hours after starting high dose steroids again that would be strong evidence against gca and then the other thing just to consider especially for our patients candidates is protection from the side effects of steroids which you've already mentioned so i mean do you typically start these patients on a ppi or bone protection as well Absolutely. So these are, generally speaking, older, uh, vulnerable and frail patients. So we always co-prescribe uh, Meprazole um, and we will always co-prescribe Alandronic Acid if the EGFR allows uh, alongside AgCal D3. And I guess one of the things about starting the steroids is is how long do you anticipate the course of steroids to be on? Because alandronic acid is, you know, it's quite a heavy duty medication in its, in its own right, comes with side effects in its own right. And so how long would you expect them to have this course of steroids if they require that level of bone protection? Absolutely. Alandronic acid is, is a real pain to take, uh, as, as you know. Um, we generally look at sort of 12 to 18 months uh, of steroids in an uncomplicated course of GCA. Um, and they'll be weaned down gradually over that period from from the starting dose of 40 to 60 milligrams down to down to, 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 to stopping. The other thing that's worth mentioning, um, in terms of your baseline investigations, if you're thinking the patient's going to be committed to long-term steroids, I always check a baseline calcium, vitamin D and HbA1c because uh, it allows uh, during follow-up for you to assess for complications related to treatment. Yeah, fantastic. And and Matt, I want to pick up on one other thing you said, which was talking about relapses. And I guess that was one thing which I was interested about is, is how often after being treated, or maybe you might stop the steroids after that time period you mentioned, how often would these patients occur or how often do relapses occur in these types of patients? Yeah, I, I mean, it's common. Relapses, relapses is, com- is, is, is relatively common. Um, and initially it's treated by uh, confirming with um, repeat CRP and ESR. And then uh, nudging the prednisone dose back up to where the patient uh, last felt symptom free. But if uh, there's a relapse which involves um, jaw cortication or 
visual symptoms, then it's uh, return to go uh, back to the initial starting dose of prednisolone. Yeah. Do not pass go. Do not collect 60 milligrams of prednisolone. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Matt. Well, I think we've discussed pretty much everything that is pertinent for a, for a PACES candidate when approaching this type of mm-hmm. uh, station. Before we go on, anything you want to go back and talk about? I think we covered everything of which is important. Yeah, I, I think uh, on uh, patients who... so. We, we mentioned uh, prednisolone being the mainstay of treatment. Patients who relapse would be considered uh, for methotrexate or leflunamide. Uh, and then uh, if they relapse on those medications, um, they're usually discussed in a regional uh, multidisciplinary uh, discussion uh, uh, with respect to whether we would start IL-6 blocking medications such as tocilizumab which people may be familiar with from, from COVID, uh, the COVID era. Uh, although in rheumatology, we've been using tocilizumab for, for, for years. Um, since COVID was a twinkle in a bat's eye, it's got well-evidenced for GCA. The 2017 JAK study uh, showed that it reduces um, or increases uh, sustained remission uh, and facilitates prednisolone wean. Yeah, fantastic. So that's important for those patients who attend with a relapse, but I guess something for the rheumatology clinic rather than our Paces candidates. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Matt, I think we've discussed GCA at length and it's time for you to face your own, what can I say? Face your own giant fears. And that is Reg against the machine. Listeners, I am delighted to welcome a brand new podcast partner, Scrubs, in all caps, S-C-R-B-S. This company is run by two GPs and they make awesome scrubs. I've been wearing mine for a couple of weeks now and they absolutely strike the balance between being comfortable, functional and appearing professional at work at a decent price. And they're even more affordable when you use the discount code PACES10 to get 10% off any order. Just head to scrubs.co.uk, S-C-R-B-S co.uk and use the code paces10 for 10% off your order at the checkout the best podcast feature that's ever been seen it's reg against the machine welcome to reg against the machine this is the 10 question quickfire quiz which i have spaffed my study budget on i've bought a machine which spits out random quiz topics to our uh, to our uh, expert guests and they then have to answer the questions with as many correct answers as they can. So, Matt, the way we play is you've got 10 questions. If you okay. get the answer without the multiple choice options, you get two points. If you need a bit of a helping hand, we'll give you four multiple choice options. And if you get the answer after that, it's one point. So there are 20 points up for grabs in total. What's the record, Sam? The record? That's a good question. I'm sure, well, where's the consultant? I know we've had several who've got full marks. Um, Reggie against the machine, I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and double check. I mean, you've got to be aiming for 20. I'll see what I can do. All right, well, let's crank the machine and see what topic is spat out for you. And the topic that's come out for you, well, you helped us with giant cell arteritis and your questions are on giants in popular culture. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Bring it on. All right. Question number one. In children's literature, in the Roald Dahl book, The BFG, a young girl, Sophie, is befriended by the title character. But what does BFG stand for? Big friendly giant. And he's off the mark with two points. Question number two. And they start off easy. They do get harder. What is the name of the half giant famous in the Harry Potter franchise? 
for being the Hogwarts gamekeeper. That'll be Hagrid. It is Hagrid for another two points. Question number three. In mythology, what is the name of the type of giant who has one singular eye in the middle of their forehead? Cyclops. That is a Cyclops. It's 100% so far. Three from three. Okay, in the Bible, what was the name of the giant that was slain by David using his sling? Not much of a Bible reader, but I think that's Goliath. It was Goliath for another two points. I know that points. from my football. I know that from my football. Whenever <laughs> <laughs> Fulham beat anyone, it's a David versus Goliath event. Question number five. Who, known as the Giant, was a legendarily large professional wrestler in the 1960s to the 1980s, famous for suffering with acromegaly, which caused his excessive growth? Ah, oh, do you know, I'll know it if I hear the name. It's not Frank Zane. Is it Andre? It's Andre the Giant. It is Andre the Giant. Yes. <laughs> and it's five from five still. Who's Frank Zane? I don't is know. Is he a bodybuilder? He's a body. He was in that scene, I think. You got Andre the Giant at any rate. In the English fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk, what does the giant say he will do with Jack's bones if he catches him? Ah. Uh. For someone who's expecting a baby, he needs to get up on his uh, English fairy tales. Yeah, ask me that in a year's time. Uh, grind them down? I'm going to need you to be more specific. Grind them down to dust? Oh, I feel like... Powder? Not, I mean, not quite. I don't think I can give you the two points. I feel like I can give you one. It's grind them down to make bread. Grind your uh. bones to make my bread, is what he said. I'm giving you the one point. You got grinding them, but I wanted the bread. Thank you. No, no worries. Question number seven. The Giant's Causeway is an area of about 40,000 interlocking basalt columns which formed as the result of an ancient volcanic eruption in which United Kingdom country? As in uh, County Antrim of Northern Ireland. It was in Northern Ireland for, for another two points. Question eight. Which large, hairy, human-like mythical creature is alleged to inhabit the forests of North America although scientific consensus has largely disproven their existence. Um, Sasquatch? Sasquatch. Bigfoot. uh, Bigfoot, yeah. But we'll give you a Sasquatch. Question number nine. The Colossus of Rhodes is a giant statue of the Greek god of the sun erected in the city of Rhodes. But who is the Greek god of the sun? How many lifelines do I have? I mean, you you can ask for multiple choices as many times as you want. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um... Yeah, can I have multiple choice, please? Yeah, of course. So, the Greek god of the sun, is it Apollo? Is it Helios? Is it Hermes? Or is it Hades? Is it Helios? It is Helios. Yeah, it's Helios, yeah. (laughs) Tash just texted me Apollo as I said Helios. (laughs) She's listening in, clearly. And she's wrong. I'll gloat on that for a long time. (laughs) And question number 10. What colour giant is associated with the selling uh, with selling a commercial brand of your and mine uh, yours and mine favourite vegetable, sweet corn? Oh yeah, what colour giant? And it's another topical clue. Ho ho ho! Okay, the clue's really thrown me, okay. but um, I believe it's uh, Michael Jackson's favourite Jolly Green Giant. It is the Jolly Green Giant. Well, the topical bit was that ho ho ho. We're recording near to Christmas. No. What's the link? No. That's the advert. The advert was Ho 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 Green Giant. Oh, of course it was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Green Giant. Green Giant. 
Well, Matt, that gives you a total score of 18 out of 20. And just goes to show it's not all about the winning. You were so close to full marks, but still a very respectable score on uh, a surprise topic of giants in popular culture. Thank you. That's very creative. I enjoyed that. And that only leaves us to say a huge thank you to our resident rheumatology registrar, Dr. Matt Wells. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and helping us tackle giant cell arteritis. Thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, that is just about all the time we've got for this week's show. Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the podcast or leave a five-star review. We always love to hear from you, so please do give us a shout on our Twitter, which is at Prepaces Podcast. If you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that directly at buymeacoffee.com slash Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. I've been Dr. Sam Williams. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. Podcast.